All right, we're going to continue our series in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll begin tonight by reading verses 3 through 6. The Bible says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We studied verses 3 through 5 last week. We made application to us in how Paul was thankful, prayerful, and joyful. He is writing to these Philippians in joy. They have partnered in the gospel. He says, uh, I thank God for the fellowship in the gospel. And we'll see later on in this book, in chapter 4, that this is the church that helped Paul financially as he was fulfilling God's ministry for his life. And so he's writing them. He's not correcting anything. He's not having to you know, fix a bunch of stuff that's wrong. And so he's writing this with joy. He's happy to be writing this letter. And I don't want to re-preach all that we've already covered. But we'll pick back up tonight in verse 6, where we find a very popular verse, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's a very popular verse because it's a very great verse. Amen? All the Word of God is profitable, but certainly you here tonight have heard this verse, and for some of you it may even be a special verse in your life. It's very popular, but it's not unique to the Philippians. It is something that is for every believer. It can be applied to a church body as a whole. It can be applied that way, but really the primary interpretation of this verse is how God works in individual believers. This verse is for all saints. Therefore, Paul wasn't confident of this good work being performed because they had such a good church. Although we would admit tonight that that helps. Amen? Amen, preacher. We love our church. Amen. We're glad to be here tonight. Woo! Having a good church certainly helps. But God's going to work in you regardless of what circumstance you find yourself in. And so, while that helps in the process, Paul is not confident in these things because he's writing to such a good church. This is a wonderful verse of assurance for believers. Because what we find is God will complete what He begins. God doesn't just start a work and then leaves it off. He finishes it. Amen. He, he, he sees it through to completion. He finishes what he, he starts. And whatever He starts, He finishes. And so it's a very comforting verse of assurance for us tonight. And every believer needs to understand this verse, and especially those who struggle with their assurance of salvation. I remember my dad once preached a sermon entitled, Things Every Christian Should Be Assured Of. And I'd have to re-listen to the sermon to see if this verse was there, but I'll guarantee you that the, the thought from this verse was in there, because this is something, verse 6, is something every Christian needs to be assured of. 
You need to know what it is God's doing in your life. Our assurance of salvation is so important. And I want you to get this because this is a hot issue outside of our circles in some churches. It is so important. Why do we focus so heavy upon assurance of salvation? Because if you never get assurance of your salvation, you're never going to mature as a believer. You're always going to be stuck back here on the milk of the Word. You're never going to grow. And don't you reckon Satan knows that? And he knows if he can get you to doubt and to doubt and to doubt, then you'll never grow and you'll never be of any value to the kingdom of God because you're always wondering whether or not you've ever been saved to begin with. So it's very important for us to have assurance of salvation. We have to be maturing as believers. And we've been born into the family of God. And being born into the family of God, God expects growth. And if we're not growing, we do need to do a gut check. We do need to see, wait a minute, am I in the faith? This can be a difficult thing to try to teach, but how can one grow if they're never sure they've been born? So it's very important that we get this settled in our life. You want to be able to move on to the meat of God's Word, not just stay on the milk. And so... You've got to settle your salvation once and for all. Now, as I was, I was saying, beginning to say, this is a very touchy subject to try to present and to teach because you want to be careful how everything is said. You don't want to be guilty of giving someone who believes they are saved the false assurance that they are born again when they never were at all. And I also don't want to be guilty of causing people to doubt. Though if I had to choose, I would choose the latter. I'd much rather you doubt and get it settled than you never know for sure and end up in hell. I don't want you to have a false sense of security. So the question often comes up, do you believe in once saved, always saved? It's a good question. It's a question we should not back away from. And it's a question that ought to be asked. I have no problem with the question. It's a good question. It's one that I'll never shy away from because I believe I have the right answer biblically. Now ask me a harder question and we'll see. Amen. I like how Oliver B. Green said he would answer the question, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And he would answer with, I believe in eternal life. And his point was, his, his point was, people want to argue about that statement. Once saved, always saved. Because it's not found in the Bible. But the phrase eternal life is, right? And how do you explain away eternal life? Therefore, if the believer has eternal life, then how can one explain away eternal security? It can't be done. We had a young man here, some know who I'm talking about, would like to go round and round on this issue. And I actually finally had to go to the the person and say, look, you've got to stop doing that in this church. We don't believe that. And I'm okay having the, the debate, but you're trying to spread it. And that's where I have to cut it off. Well, we were talking and we were going round and round. And, and I said, how does eternal life end? And there was never an answer. And yet, there is still the belief that you can lose your salvation. I found that very interesting. 
What's interesting is those on the other side of the debate will argue for the perseverance of the saints. But that's also a phrase not found in the Bible. So it's almost humorous. You have two sides saying, I believe this, once saved, always saved, not in the Bible. I believe this, perseverance of the saints, not found in the Bible. We're both arguing over terms that aren't there. So when in doubt, use Bible terms. I believe in eternal life. Now, with that being said, do I believe in once saved, always saved? Yes, 100%. I don't shy away from that. I believe that with all my heart. If something's eternal, it cannot end. I mean, that's the way I understand the word eternal. For those who want to say the Bible teaches you can lose your salvation, they really only have a handful of verses at most that they use in their argument to try to convince you that you can lose your salvation. But to those who want to say the Bible teaches you are eternally secure, there is a very long list of verses to draw from. Because of this, it is my opinion that the burden of proof is not upon me to prove eternal security, but it's upon others to prove that you can lose your salvation. I've mentioned before that when you come to a debated doctrine, you must look in your Bible for a verse that is black and white. That there is no misinterpretation of that verse whatsoever. For example, when it comes to the debate over were, you, were some predestined for hell and were some predestined for heaven? Well, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not slack concerning His promises as some men count slackness, but He's long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Therefore, I am not to allow any teaching that violates that verse. It's black and white. It's clear. It is clear that God is not willing that any should perish. So why should I believe that He's willing for some to perish? And we, we could go down all kinds of teachings. I don't think God's good. That's not what the Bible says. I don't think God's merciful. I don't think God's just. I don't think God's just. What does the Bible say? And so when we come to the doctrine of eternal security, what do we know, what the, what do we know about what the Bible says on the subject? Is there something that tells us one way or the other and therefore we are not to cross that line in the sand? Well, there are... Many verses, so many, I'm not even going to get into them all. There are so many verses that speak of eternal life and everlasting life that there's no way to deny that once you're saved, you have it. And if it's eternal, how do you lose it? If it's everlasting, how does it end for you? Not to mention all the verses that talk about being justified, that talk about not being condemned, that talk about being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And we can go on and on. And so if that's true, that the Bible says all that, and it is, then why is it that so many, even in our stripe of churches, why is it that so many struggle with the assurance of their salvation? Well, the bottom line answer is, we still sin after we're saved. And that makes us begin to doubt. 
makes us begin to wonder, am I really saved? And this is where I have to be extremely careful. Because listen to me tonight, if you sin and you sin and you sin and you never see any growth, you never have any conviction, you never have any chastisement from the Lord, you're probably not saved. But we do stupid things even after we're saved. And Satan knows how to use this against us to get us to doubt our position in Christ. And most of us, at one point or another, have had seasons of doubt. I've been there. I don't know if you've been there. I don't know that any of us are immune to ever wondering, am I saved? When I make that point, I usually like to draw upon what happened with John the Baptist right before he was killed. And he sent his disciples to go to Jesus and ask, Art thou the Christ? Or do we look for another? This is the man that baptized Jesus. This is the man who saw the Spirit descending and lighting upon Christ as a dove. And yet, in the prison, through the hard times, through the difficult times, is this the Christ? Or do we look for another? John, you got to be kidding me. Well, that's not what Jesus said, amen. Um, it's a good thing Jesus is Lord. And so, I think maybe we've all been there. Maybe we've all had those seasons. Maybe we've all been through such deep and trying times that we've wondered, am I saved? Maybe we've all done something so ridiculously stupid. There's no way any child of God would do this. Well... How is it that I can be saved and do this? How is it that I can be saved and still have such a strong desire to do what I know is wrong? Well, the answer is simple. And you really just need to come to terms with it. Not in an attempt to justify your sinfulness, but in understanding who we are and the process that God is bringing us through. And the answer is this. When we were born again, God did not take away our flesh when He saved us. We still have this flesh. Turn over to Romans. I want to show you a couple things in a couple chapters there. Romans chapter 7 is where we'll begin. And let's look at Romans 7, verses 14 through 24. And as I read this, keep in mind, this is the Apostle Paul making this confession. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present within me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. 
For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I believe all of us would readily agree that Paul was one of the greatest Christians ever to live. And yet he he admits here that he routinely struggled in doing good and not doing evil. And we all face this battle. Amen. If you're too proud to admit that, come and see me. We all face this battle. His conclusion of himself in verse 24 is, Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul says, I'm wretched. I'm a sinner. He called himself the chief of sinners. He knew how wretched his flesh was. But take a look at what else he knew. First he asked in verse 24, Who shall deliver me? And then look at verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. But this thought doesn't end at the end of chapter 7. It continues through chapter 8. And what do you think Paul's going to say in chapter 8? He's just admitted he's wretched. He just admitted he struggles with sinfulness. And so are we going to find the Apostle Paul repeatedly asking God to save him again and again? Or will he acknowledge that while he struggles and battles his flesh and battles sinful temptations, he ultimately knows that he is secure in Christ? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Once we are in Christ, we are no longer condemned. How can I still be lost if I'm not condemned? How can I not have eternal life if I'm not condemned? And notice the wording here. It does not say the day will come that I am no longer condemned. But what does it say? I'm not condemned now. Presently, I'm not condemned. Why? Because we've already passed from death to life. See also John 5, 24. But what about the rest of the verse where it says, those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That kind of sounds like works to me. Well, what we're being taught here is there's also going to be fruits of our new life. Because those who are no longer condemned, they will walk or they will live after the Spirit. They will not live after the flesh. This is not speaking of sinful perfection, but what this is telling us is there is a desire within the one that is born again, within the one that is no longer condemned, there is the desire to live right and to be right with God. John 3 speaks to this. It says over there in John 3, 18 through 20, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds be reproved. 
So the difference between walking after the Spirit and walking after the flesh is the willingness to have your sins dealt with. Those who love darkness and have never come to the light, they don't want their sins dealt with. And they are still condemned because they continue on in darkness knowing that if I come to the light, something's going to change. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, 7, that the carnal mind is enmity against God. And in verse 8, they who are in the flesh cannot please God. That in verse 9, look what he says though. We are not in the flesh. Huh. How about that? We are in the Spirit. How is that possible? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. How do we know that? Verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I should not have to convince any that they're saved. The Spirit ought to testify to your spirit. That's the difference. Being in the Spirit, there is a desire to have our sins dealt with. Our flesh is still here. Those who are still in the flesh, never been saved, you're at enmity against God. And the problem is, You don't want your sins dealt with. You don't want them to be in the light. And that's the big difference between walking in the Spirit, walking in the flesh. And I wish I had time to break down this whole chapter, but let's drop down to verse 33. It says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. To be justified is just as if we never sinned. And notice that it was not our goodness that justifies us. But what does it say? It is God who justifies. It is not our baptism. It is not our membership. It is not our good works. It is not our puffed up pride thinking we're God's gift to Christianity. But we are justified by God. And because of this, who can lay anything to God's elect? Those who are in Christ. How is it you can be condemned? You can't because you've been justified. We are declared sinless because Christ satisfied the Father's requirement. He who knew no sin became sin for us. We might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, if you've been born again, then you're no longer condemned. You are now justified. You now have Christ's righteousness upon your account. And I want to ask you, what is it that you can add to that? Because here's the thing, even the people in the camp that say you can lose it will admit that at the point of salvation, you're saved. You you have a clean slate. You've been justified at that point that you have Christ's righteousness. How are you going to add to that? How are you going to take away from it? What is it you can do to add to the righteousness of Christ? So where are you going with this? If you believe you can lose it, then there's something you have to do in order to add to it. Because you're saying it's not good enough to keep you. What is it we're going to add to what Christ did? You cannot cause yourself to be in a better position than being in Christ. 
You cannot improve upon your salvation. But get this, you can't take away from it either. Because it's all a work of God. You cannot place yourself in a worse position. We're talking about in your standing with God right now. Look at the question he asked in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Verses 37 through 39. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how is it that Paul answers the dilemma that he mentions in chapter 7? Where he understands, I'm wretched, I'm a sinner, I've I've got problems that I'm dealing with, I want to do good, I find evils there. And and, and how does he answer this? He answers it in chapter 8 by opening with no condemnation. And he closes chapter 8 with no separation. Are you getting that picture? He says, I I, I know that there's a battle. I know that I've got this sin nature that I, I struggle with. But you know what? I'm not condemned and nothing can separate me. That should bring you comfort. And therefore, he may have struggled with sin, but he did not struggle with his position in Christ. And I wish I could get others to understand it. You'd be surprised how much time I have to spend on this issue with folks born and raised in independent Baptist churches. Do you know that you're saved? Well, I don't really know. Tell me about your salvation experience. Blah, 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 blah. What are you struggling with? Well, I just keep doing this and that, and I don't think I'd be doing that if I was saved. What does the Bible say? And it becomes this circular problem where you find years later you're still, in, still dealing with somebody who's now in their 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s. They've never gotten victory. They've never moved past step one because they don't understand that in Christ there's no condemnation. That in Christ there's no separation. And in the middle of that, there's justification. This may sound rudimentary to a Wednesday night crowd. Trust me, it's not. There's one thing I've learned over pastoring is this. People are dumber than you give them credit for. Now, I say that with all due respect. When I first started preaching, I was 21 years old, and I preached my first sermon, and I sunk down in the back of my dad's car afterwards, and my dad said, what's the matter with you? I said, I can't, I can't preach. I can't, how am I supposed to get up and tell people how they're supposed to live and what the Bible says and all that? And he said, well, you might as well get over that. I was thinking because the audience that I was preaching to, being in their 60s, 70s, 80s, they're going to be much wiser in the Bible than I, they're not. Breck, was it you I was talking to I said that to? Amen. I said, Breck, just stand up and preach, buddy. They don't know half what you think they know. Amen. Not you guys. The other you guys. Amen. So I wish people would understand this. It's not an excuse for sinfulness. But it is an acknowledgement that God is still working on us. I wish I could spend months going over passages like Romans 8 that prove our eternal security. But I need to get back to Philippians 
chapter 1 and verse 6 before we dismiss. God is at work, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what is the good work that God has begun in you? Well, Jesus said in John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He has sent. So the work of God in you is first you believing in Christ as your Savior. So the good work of verse 6 is salvation being brought, being wrought into your life. By the power of God, when you place your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And this is the work that God is going to continue in you until you die or until the day of Jesus Christ. But wait a minute, I thought you said once we're saved, we're always saved. What do you mean God is still working salvation in us? If nothing can change that fact, then why is this good work being continued after I am saved? Good question. Well, we've already covered how none of us are sinless after salvation. We understand that's a problem right there. So what gives? Those of us in Christ, we are saved positionally immediately. Nothing can jeopardize this. We, we are destined to be with God and He's preparing a place for us. It happens the moment we placed our faith and trust in Christ Nothing's going to take that away. We're in God's hand, and the Bible says that none are able to pluck you out of God's hand. And just for the record, for those of you that want to argue it, you ain't strong enough to jump out of it. This is what we call justification. We are saved from the penalty of sin immediately as far as our eternal destination and God's wrath that was upon us. That is now take, the sentence of that is now taken away because Jesus fulfilled that. However, we are currently being saved from the power of sin. This is what we call our sanctification. God is now working on all of us to conform us into the image of Christ. Amen. It's your sanctification. You still sin. You still have problems. God is conforming you. He's chiseling away at you. He's trying to make you into the image of His dear Son. This is where God begins to work on our pride. This is where God has to bring us to places where we realize we are nothing. This is where God has to bring us to places where the Apostle Paul was in Romans 7 and says that as for me and my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. This is where God has to get us to conclude in our lives that we are wretched without Him. That we are nothing without Christ. This is part of our sanctification. And as we build upon that, God has to constantly break us down and build us up, conforming us into the image of His Son. We are being sanctified. It's a process, and it's a lifelong process. None of you have arrived tonight. And if you said you had, you just sinned because you're prideful. Amen. I'm in a good mood. Nobody else is, but that's all right. And so one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. This is our glorification. We are justified immediately. We are being sanctified progressively. And we will be glorified eternally. And here in our text, Paul says that he's confident that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
this verse and others like it are meant to be a comfort to us because while we struggle, while we stumble along the way, while we have our ups and we have our downs, we can rest assured that God has not given up on us. But He is at work in our life. say, well, it's uncomfortable. I know it's uncomfortable because you're not learning the lesson the easy way. (laughs) Why is verse 6 to be such a comfort to the child of God? Well, notice that Paul's confidence wasn't in the Philippian believer's ability to have a good church. He's not confident of this very thing because, man, you guys got it together. You got your bishops, your deacons, you got your church functioning. You got good doctrine. Things are going right. And because of that, I'm confident, man, uh, things are going to work out for you. No, no, no. Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing because of God. It is God that worketh in you. We don't have this confidence because we've put together a good bunch of people. There's none good. No, not one. But we have this confidence because God has begun a good work and it is upon Him to continue that work. God hasn't given up on us. Amen. Yeah, we got issues. Yeah, we're going to struggle. God's not through with us. Hallelujah. We see that God is the one who begins the work. We see that it is God who will continue the work. And we see that it is God who will complete this work. Because God continues the process until we die or until the day of Jesus Christ, which is His return for His saints. And I can take comfort in this verse because this process isn't up to me. It is true that if I am really in Christ, then I will ultimately desire His good work to be accomplished in me. That's true. But I also know that I don't have the power in of myself to complete this work. And this is why the whole issue about losing, losing salvation bothers me. You weren't good enough to get it. What makes you think you're good enough to keep it? You see, all I can do is I can yield myself to the Spirit. And I can allow God to work in me. It must be of God. And because this is God's good work and because God cannot fail, I understand that this is His process. This is why we have to be careful looking at another and say, how come you're not up here where I'm at? There's some prideful folks out there that say those things. God is working in everybody's life. We all grow at different times and seasons and levels and speeds and all the rest. And listen, we are confident of this because you and I are living proof of verse 6 tonight. The, the principles I mentioned from Romans 8, what we're seeing here in Philippians 1.6, why are we even on church on a Wednesday night? What has led us to be the the ones that think it's wise to be in church three times a week. We're the fanatical bunch. We're the nuts. We're the strict Baptist. (laughs) We're proving verse 6. I'm here because I'm confident of this thing. That he which hath begun a good work in me will perform it until the day. Why would I have that desire? I think this is why God made me a pastor because, listen, there are times I would not even want to be here. But this keeps me accountable, amen? 
Don't act like you've never wanted to come to church. Now that we have live stream, you can do it and say, yeah, great message. Well, I can tell I need to wind this down. So God has placed in our hearts to be in here. But again, we all grow in different stages. All joking aside about me being a pastor and, and, and making that hold me accountable, I believe God has done that because that's how He's chosen to work, verse 6, in my life. You may not need to be in that position. I do. Or else I would not, I would find reasons to disappear. So are we saved eternally? According to this verse, we are. God began a good work in us. He saved us and He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I would say that's all the assurance we need. If someone says they are saved but also believes they can lose their salvation, then they are ultimately saying that Christ's death and His blood was not sufficient enough in of itself because if we can lose what Christ has purchased through His blood, then we are saying that we are somehow better than Christ's sacrifice and God's justification because it's now up to us to keep it. You know what? I, this sermon may have come out all wrong. I hope it didn't. I have so much on my mind that it's hard to get all the thoughts in order, so I apologize if it came out all wrong. But, but listen, this verse to me is, is proof positive. Once God has started that work of salvation, you're good. He's going to keep working it. doesn't mean that you have a license to sin. It doesn't mean we're allowed to do whatever we want to do. We don't believe in any of that. In fact, we believe that if you're saved, you're going to have the fruits of righteousness in your life. There's going to be something we can look at, put our finger on and say, aha. So I hope this didn't come out all wrong. But I hope you've settled in your heart this matter of eternal security. If you have genuinely asked Christ to save you, nail it down. This is why Adrian and I tell everybody that we ever lead to Christ, I want you to go to the front flyleaf of your Bible and I want you to put this date down. If you genuinely did business with God, I want you to write this date down right now, right here. Because the day's coming that Satan's going to come along and he's going to try to get you to doubt this moment right here. And you can go back and you can say, no, I know that on December the 23rd, whatever we're on, I did business with God. And no matter how I feel right now, his word is much better than my feelings. You need to know you're justified. You're not condemned. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Don't use it to excuse your sin, but admit when you do fail, God is still at work in your life. He'll keep working on you until you die or Jesus comes back. Are you confident of this very thing? Well, let's pray.